Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, 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 welcome. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, Today we have a really important show, um, a timely show, if you're hearing about this as close to our um, live recording of it. Um, Today was the day that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was um, uh, uh, held at state in state in, in the Capitol um, the first woman to have achieved that as a member of the state um, and the first Jewish person. Uh, that day today is also marked by the fact that um, we are now hearing that um, Amy Coney Barrett is um, the uh, potential um, nominee from Donald Trump to replace uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as tasteless as it is for all that to be happening at the, uh, you know, when uh, uh, Ms. Ginsburg is barely being laid to rest. Um, and obviously the Republicans and the GOP and Mitch O'Connell and Donald Trump are frantically um, working to take advantage of um, Justice Ginsburg's death and uh, putting someone in place. And um, we can only imagine the agenda that is behind that on what they hope to accomplish on the Supreme Court now packed with um, conservatives. So that is what our show is going to be about today. Um, We are going to be bringing on a foremost expert um, in this question, uh, Kate Kendall. She's the interim legal director at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Kate has a, an illustrious background um, for 22 years. She led the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Um, and then at, when she stepped down from there, she served as a campaign manager for Take Back the Court. Um, and that is an organization committed to the structural reform of the U.S. Supreme Court. So she knows exactly what she's talking about. And we are going to be asking her about what is to come. Um, We're not really going to debate the complete unethical stance of the GOP and the move that they made, um, nor shock and surprise um, of this power grab, even though it is completely um, an act of hypocrisy on not only Mitch McConnell, but um, most of the Republican senators uh, and comments they've made in the past. They've um, trampled on all that and are just making their moves um, to grab power. And that's the way it is. And um, so we'll, we'll just have to deal with that reality. But we want to see what is to come, what this election could do to impact it, and what the future holds. Um, before we bring Kate on, I want to welcome to the show my um, Perfect co-host, Brody Levesque. Brody, what other stories are going on in the news? Well, uh, we got uh, word about an hour ago from our sources, uh, both on Capitol Hill and uh, in the White House, that the president is indeed leaning 
towards the selection of uh, alone the Seventh Circuit Court Judge Amy Coney Barrett to replace uh, Justice Ginsburg. Um, it was noted today that when Justice Ginsburg was brought to the U.S. Capitol for honors by members of the United States Congress, uh, conspicuously absent were Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. They didn't even bother showing up. Um, Good. So that's that that's just kind of how I'm glad they weren't there today, the you know. Yeah. Um, the problematic thing that we're dealing with now, of course, is the White House. And uh, you know, in all the years that I've been a political reporter in the United States, which is about four decades worth now, I don't think I would have ever, ever, ever envisioned headlines that I saw today uh, in the major dailies, including the Washington Post and the New York Times. From the Washington Post headline, Trump again says he may not abide by election results. The New York Times, president again rejects promise to honor a vote. This started with a question uh, from Playboy magazine's White House correspondent in a press briefing a couple of days ago. And he asked the president, you know, uh, would you abide with a peaceful uh, transition of power, which has been a consistent uh, hallmark of the American Republic since about, what, 1792 when Washington finally stepped And Trump's answer was vague, ambiguous, and more along the lines of, I don't think I probably will because I don't agree with these ballots, and if the ballots are wrong, we're going to have a continuation. Uh, and that's paraphrasing, but that was more or less the intent. Uh, and he's not backing off of that. He's made other remarks in press gaggles uh, with my colleagues on the South Lawn of the White House, uh, over the past two days as he's departed for campaign events along similar themes. Uh, presidential Democratic nominee uh, Joe Biden uh, today told reporters that he didn't believe that Trump was serious, that he would step aside. However, we have people in other parts of the government that are looking at this going, this guy is actually serious. We think that he's going to put up a fuss and a fight. Uh, as you indicated, should McConnell succeed getting uh, Barrett through before November 3rd, which is likely unless the Democrats come up with a way to kind of step up the mechanism, uh, it would give the conservative majority 6-3. The big question is whether that kind of majority would help uh, Trump in terms of any kind of debate or fracas over the election. Um, most of us in at least the political journalists and editors and that part of the press corps, uh, we're now looking at 11 p.m. Eastern on November 3rd of uh, this year with a sense of dread because uh, this is just yeah, not going to be why, why would pretty. It, why, would, why would the Supreme Court affect the election? Because if there's a question, it goes to the House, doesn't it? It doesn't go to the Supreme well, Court. It's going to end up at the high court one way or the other. I mean, the the whole process over the constitutional and, and Kate being a constitutional uh, <laughs> lawyer and expert, I'll let her answer that one. She's actually argued at the high court, so I'll let her go through that. But it just basically works out to the popular vote into the electoral, uh, the electors. There's been question over faithless electors. If the House can't make its mind up or if there's problems over the balloting, the first issue, even before we get to the Electoral College, will be the ballots themselves. We went through this in 
uh, I believe it was 2000, uh, in the Gore v. Bush uh, over the hanging Chad issues. So there's a good chance this could end up at the court, uh, even before we get into the whole electoral college mess. Um, the biggest problem with this is that the United States Constitution does have an Achilles heel, and that is that it's basically a gentleman's agreement that greatly depends on the people to honor its word. And when you have a president who does not do that, and more importantly, you've got a very questionable United States Attorney General backing up a president who doesn't necessarily fall within rule of law convention, it gets dicey. You know, and when you get a president that makes declarations like he did, you know, regardless of what Biden said, uh, it's it's very, very, very problematic because all of that rhetoric and all of that transfers itself onto the populace as a whole. Okay, you've seen what's going on with the Black Lives uh, Movement. You've seen what's happened with the case of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, the case of George Floyd. These protests, we saw what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which, by the way, the Republicans are now uh, saying that the kid that did the shooting is a hero. I'm not kidding. Uh, They're holding this kid up as a hero. This is a person who wasn't even legally allowed to possess, okay, let alone carry, you know, that thing into another state or even, for that matter, in his own state. It's – if I sound a little cynical, it's because I'm watching the United States devolve into a banana republic. And, and and it's really just the one party doing it. You know, the Democrats are trying to hold on to convention. The question is, is there going to be convention? There was a very fine op-ed written today in Salon. Okay. Um, Law Story reprinted it, and I'm going to read the teaser for it. Democrats have little hope of actually stopping Trump's nominee from eventually taking the bench. The opposition party's best bet is to slow down the process until after the election. So far, Democrats have shown no real appetite for that kind of a fight. And there really lies the crux of the problem. And, you know, looking at it, and again, I've been doing this for four decades, I don't think I would have ever in my wildest dream thought I would have been reporting on the United States like I have in places like, oh, I don't know, Venezuela. It's really pretty weird for me. And with that, I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, let's bring Kate on because I'm not. I, I I hear what you're saying on a lot of those points. I don't see some of the paths that that you see as inevitable, um, especially with the Supreme Court being involved based on precedent, because um, it goes to the state, the state Supreme Courts first. Um, so I'm not sure. I agree with you on the rhetoric because I think that's where we get into the problems because I think it's. Um, Donald Trump stirring up his his base, um, and he has uh, this fantasy that he is going to rile up his second amenders um, to hit the streets with guns um, based on his his wishes. And um, I guess that's debatable whether we think those people would actually do that or not. Um, but um, yeah, and hopefully we won't get to that point. In any case, um, we're going to back up a little bit and um, go right to the subject at hand and welcome uh, Kate Kendall to the show. Kate, welcome. Hello, guys. How are you doing? It's great to join you. I appreciate the conversation I've heard so far. Yeah, we're, we, we, 
we we hit we hit the the ground running here. Um, so Kate, you've yes, been you working. Did. I'm on... trying to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 sure you will. Um, you've been working on this with um, your initiatives um, in in all the organizations, particularly Take Back the Court. What is your take on what is happening with the Supreme Court now? What is your reaction to the recent uh, sequence of events? Well, you know, 2020 is just the gift that keeps on giving, right? Um, I thought we were in an enormously perilous moment for democracy um, a week ago, a week and a day maybe, a week and a few hours. And then with the regrettable death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we are now in a full-on crisis. Uh, we were advocating, my work at Take Back the Court was advocating for expanding the court well before we were in this moment because it is very clear that the court's rightward lurch, which has been very, very pronounced and dramatic, would make it impossible to correct things like gerrymandering, voter suppression, the flow of dark money, into elections, and this court and its current majority is perfectly happy with that. If this administration gets another seat, and Amy Coney Barrett, it looks like she is is likely to be the choice, but any of the individuals on Trump's shortlist are hardcore ideological conservative extremists. And I really want to be clear, I do not use that phrasing Lightly. I am not trying to be hyperbolic. It is an actual fact that these are not individuals guided by the law who understand the Constitution as a living, breathing document. Barrett is quoted as saying he believes the Constitution and how it is interpreted is fit at the time it was written, which is ludicrous in a modern society with so many shifts and changes and demographic differences than where we were in the late 1700s, it means that any of the corrective actions we need to take to restore a functional democracy will be impossible with this court, and the legitimacy of the court will be further eroded because a a, a new justice to replace Ginsburg is intended to be jammed through on the eve of an election, violating the rule that they themselves adopted Mm -hmm. as a GOP Senate four years ago. So we, we really are in a moment, I agree with Brody, where it's, it's worse than through the looking glass. It is, it is dystopian in a way that I would not have imagined we would be. And we just have to understand as citizens that we are no longer living in a functional democracy. So what are we going to do? We have to do something extreme, which means at the earliest opportunity, and hopefully that would be right after the election when we have the House, we take the Senate and we take the White House, immediately pass a bill to add three to five justices to the court to restore legitimacy and dilute the intentional, the intentional rightward shift to uphold only one set of beliefs and values and to torpedo the normal, the normal give and take and the constitutional process. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that later, um, bring that up, and, and I'm glad you brought it up initially of, of the what, in my opinion, is 
the right path, which is to um, to focus on conclusively winning this election, House, Senate, and White House, and then to expand the court. Um, I would think that the public um, expanding, especially two justices to three, um, would would go over well because two have been obviously ripped off and a third would um, um, create a, a potential, well, I guess it would create a, a potential for stalemate, wouldn't it? Um, wouldn't two be, make more sense because you keep that odd number? Yeah, you, de- well, you definitely have to have it be an odd number for sure. And so, yeah, yeah that's, a, I mean, two would be the bare minimum. Uh, and, and that uh, I would actually go for a higher number than that in order to, uh, I mean, there are several reforms we, we would want to put in place, but at, at a minimum, two. But keep in mind, especially if they jam through another seat, that barely corrects, and it doesn't correct at the level that you would need. It doesn't provide you, I mean, it might provide you a bare majority in some cases, but we, have, we would have essentially two stolen seats, the right. Gorsuch seat, this seat, RBG seat, and the thoroughly illegitimate uh, confirmation of Kavanaugh without a thorough reckoning of his potential history of misdeeds and, and whether he actually met the minimum qualifications that we should seek in someone being on the highest court. So right. I would be in favor of, of adding more than two in order to, to correct the wrongs and then to be able to dilute um, the vote of those justices who I believe were confirmed in a process that violated every single constitutional norm. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, why um, a few years ago when Trump took office, the Democrats or the Republicans held the House and the Senate and um, they just, you know, stole the seat that uh, should have gone to Garland. Why didn't they expand the court then and pack it with conservatives right at the outset? Well, I think we all understand that. Um, that this is a dramatic move, and they already felt like they had had essentially won and were on their way to winning and would continue to be able to – and they certainly have packed the lower federal courts. You know, it's, it's, it, keep in mind, what you need in order, for, in order to be able to, to, to do that, you need, you need the House, you need the Senate, and you need the White House. You can't just – because the bill needs to – come out of both houses of Congress and be signed by the president. And we haven't had that unitary government uh, for some time, I guess since Obama's first term probably. And that's what we would need in order to get the legislation through. And you'd want to get these justices added to the court uh, as quickly as possible because, of course, any legislation that you pass would be challenged and would find itself in front of this very court. Yeah, no, I hear you. Brody? Yeah, Kate, one of the things that I was looking at, and of course, I'm, I'm a journalist more than I am a pundit, but we've been looking at the structure of this 
And we don't see a clear path forward to stopping Trump's nomination. She's going to sit on the court. So the question becomes, you know, without that, it doesn't appear to us that there is any way to mitigate this except by expanding the court. Um, And you've had a lot of experience with the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, approximately, and, and a lot of, I, I think a lot of listeners don't understand that the Circuit Court of Appeals aren't just a group of like six, seven, eight, or nine justices. There are actually quite a few on the, on the appellate court. Um, the appellate court, because of that, when they do what's the legal term, I believe, is in bank, which means all. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. uh, well, I know you know that. As far as listeners, it's a legal term. In bank, it means everybody. Normally, in a decision from a circuit court of appeals, uh, the chief judge of the circuit will assign a three-judge panel, which sometimes is a mixture. You either get two conservatives and a progressive or two progressives and a conservative, or they have to bang out whatever ruling they decide to make. If they don't agree, then they expand upon that, and then sometimes in the appellate process, they will ask for the entire Ninth Circuit to come together. Um, what's important about that? Kate, how many how many judges are now in bank on the Ninth Circuit, roughly? Oh Josh Brody, I don't know. I think it might be seventeen. I'm not sure. Okay. Somebody do a somebody do a quick Google. But that that <laughs> court used to be. I think to your central point, that court used to be a majority progressive uh, mm-hmm. judges, and it's now uh, shifted. And almost and most circuit courts have now shifted, lurched rightward because of McConnell's packing these lower federal courts. And I will just say, as a lawyer and someone who respects the judiciary, who honors judges and their service, the cast of clowns that have been confirmed to lifetime appointments on the federal bench by this GOP Senate run by McConnell is disheartening, to say the least, and, and an insult to what it means to serve on the judiciary and the kind of temperament and the, and the intelligence and the ideological um, centrist view that we're looking for. These are unqualified, hardcore conservatives, and their only qualification to be confirmed was that they would be hardcore conservatives and they would rule in lockstep with the GOP. That perverts the very purpose of why we have a third branch of government, and that is the court, to provide oversight. These are folks who are just rubber stamps. And Barrett herself, Trump's potential, it looks like, nominee to the high court. She's been a judge for five seconds. She was first confirmed in 2017. That is Hmm. insulting and debases the entire process and what it means to be a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. And the fact that she would be taking RBG seat is nauseating. I will there disagree. be any opportunity? Will there be any opportunity once um, Biden is in and and control goes back to um, the Democrats the, on the assumption that happens that any of those can be reversed? Those appointments. You know, this is the problem with with the normal rotation, and this is why the normal rotation of political party doesn't fix this. I do not think there would be political will to impeach any of these justices. I mean, look, I half joking and only half 
uh, <laughs> posted on Twitter that, you know, what if two million of us show up at the state capitol and essentially you know, storm the building to stop these hearings from going forward? I mean, I really do feel like that is that is the only thing that could possibly work. And yet, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People are so beleaguered and beaten down by just the, the barrage of terrible, inhumane actions across the country. You mentioned Kyle Rittenhouse earlier, Brody. You know, his parents yeah. were just cheered by Wisconsin GOP women um, and given a standing ovation. I mean, this, they, we are sick. And it just, it's almost too much to take in between that and the Breonna Taylor charge yesterday. You just look around and think, you know, two million of us going to D.C. to try to stop this. I feel like there's this, there's this learned helplessness, which is a real thing, where we just feel like there's nothing we can do because the onslaught is unrelenting. So the fact of the matter is I don't think there would be a summit for impeachment of, you know, any of the, the folks that have taken seats, I feel like, completely illegitimately. I think the only hope is could we get one more GOP senator, two more GOP senators to say we won't confirm before the election. Mm. Now, would they do it in a lame duck? I think there's even more pressure to not do that, especially if, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, Biden has a resounding declaratory win over Trump. Um, but, and I think they know that too. So, and McConnell knows that too. The, the, the window of opportunity is between now and the election. But it just so sullies the process. I mean, even putting aside our ideological views and the fact that, that the people who, he, who he's considering are completely counter to all sorts of values of liberty and justice and fairness and objectivity, just basic objectivity in terms of how you view the law. You're not a partisan. You are truly a judge and a justice, meeting out justice, even assuming that, you know, putting all that aside, just the, the perversion of the process and the degradation of what it means to be a Supreme Court justice and what the court means to democracy I, is, will, well, I think take a, a generation, maybe more, depending on where we are, to undo, but for doing something dramatic like expand, uh, passing a law, passing a bill signed by President Biden to expand the size of the court, which doesn't feel to me dramatic anymore. It doesn't feel to me revolutionary anymore. It feels to me essential. Yeah, no, it sounds – actually, it sounds right because of the behavior of the GOP first um, denying the Garland um, confirmation hearings to even happen, and then – um, their uh, hypocritical uh, move on um, on uh, the, the Ginsburg um, opening. Um, so that sounds like more like a, just a corrective action from if, even if you were viewing it more from an objective, nonpartisan way. It, it doesn't feel like a power grab, which could make it, you know, legitimate. Um, Kate, I want to shift gears a little bit with you on what sure. is in the pipeline. Let's assume that Trump and McConnell are going to be successful, that um, uh, Barrett is confirmed. Um, they now have the 
loaded gun at the Supreme Court, particularly in the area of women's reproductive rights, that um, if the right case came to them, that not only could Roe versus Wade be overturned, they could do it with the face of a woman on it doing the overturning. Um, what What is coming up? What are the cases that are headed towards that Supreme Court and what do you think the outcomes would be and the effects of them? Yeah, Rob, I think well, you, you kind of hit one of the big ones and that there would certainly be uh, a challenge to Roe. And were Barrett to be confirmed, uh, Roe is gone. And there's no doubt about that. The best we can hope for from the court is that they would leave it to the states to determine whether or not they would allow uh, women to terminate their pregnancies through abortion. Uh, that's the best we could hope for. Uh, I think it is not inconceivable um, that they would go even farther and legislate themselves about whether uh, any abortion is permissible. Because Barrett is quoted as saying that abortion is immoral under all circumstances. So even the cases of life of the mother rape, incest, you know, it's, it's, it would always, she has simply no regard for a woman to have bodily integrity and determine when and where she will choose to be a parent. So that, and that's going to, that's going to bleed over into all sorts of privacy concerns, including the rights of LGBTQ people. So, you know, we won Bostick, which I think was a surprise for many folks. I will say, honestly, it was a surprise for me. And Mm -hmm. I do want to correct one thing Brody said. Well, while my former organization, NCLR, has had five actually successful cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, I did not have the honor or pleasure of arguing any of them. I just, I led the organization, I stood on the sidelines and cheered my team. So I wanted to <laughs> correct that, Brody, but thank you for elevating uh, my staff here. Um, Sorry. <laughs> but, well, so Bostick was this enormously important case that held that Title VII and its prohibition on sex discrimination covers sexual orientation and gender identity. We've been advocating for that for as long as I've been a lawyer, which goes back to the mid-1980s. We've lost every single time. Now we finally won, and it included, and the thing I was most afraid of is that we mm-hmm. win on sexual orientation and maybe lose on gender identity. Nope. Trans people are protected. Uh, LGB people are protected under Title VII from discrimination in employment. But the Mack truck exception that this court would allow to be driven through that important ruling is a religious exemption. So that, those cases are bound to be the next cut at not just Bostick and employment, but even marriage. While I don't think the court would overrule the right of same-sex couples to legally marry, could they erode it by saying you don't have to, uh, if you have religious objections uh, to LGBTQ people, if a couple, uh, if one of your employees gets married to someone of the same sex, it's perfectly fine to fire them because you find that offensive. Uh, or not to serve LGBTQ people, not to provide services to couples who are seeking to get married, not to permit adoption for same-sex couples, even if they're married. So there are all sorts of ways in which that enormous victory in Obergefell that we won in 2015 could be slowly chipped away and undermined. And I think that will affect all sorts of non-discrimination protections 
also on race, marital status, um, national origin. If, if we start to have there be ex exceptions to laws of general applicability that say non-discrimination is our value, equality is our value, but if we have then an asterisk that says unless, unless you don't like those people based on your religious beliefs, then it's perfectly permissible to discriminate against them. That's the, that is the field into which we are heading with this confirmation uh, if it, right. if it goes forward. Right. Which I, which and I, then of course, and and of course so I should also for... point out. Oh. oh, go ahead. So sorry, Rob. I was just going to say, and the ACA, I mean, let's just think beyond, you know, our parochial interests as queer people. Uh, the ACA would, uh, I think be, uh, completely eviscerated. Uh, mm -hmm. there'd be no possibility of anything near a green new deal or any sort of climate change legislation. Uh, anything to deal with with racial injustice and anti-black behavior of law enforcement, there would be no there be, would no warrant for any of that. Uh, it would be, I mean, you know, we're living in Trump's America. Imagine that worldview being animated by the majority of the Supreme Court. Now that's a nightmare scenario. Right, right. No, I'm I'm glad you laid out those parameters. Um, I'm just wondering. Um, because to me that it sort of throws the issue in a little different environment than simply saying, you know, gay rights will suddenly go away because, um, you know, I'm coming sort of from a historical position of having been part of the whole movement as, as things evolved. And I know here in California that when, um, same-sex marriage was first proposed through the legislature and, you know, that they were trying to go that avenue to put it in place as opposed to going to the courts, they actually had written in to that religious exemptions because they were trying to make it in a palatable format so it would achieve its highest potential. Um, and, it seems like the, the threat of the religious exemption could be far more ranging in other directions where, um, you know, religions who are racist, um, you know, yep. religions that are, you know, it's, it's like to your point, it really does then throw in almost all anti-discrimination um, legislation into question. Um, is there a specific case that is making its way towards the Supreme Court now that we should also be watching as, you know, it has some of these silver bullets in it? You know, I don't, I can't recall one that I think is, is on the current docket or the 2021, 20, 2020-2021 term. Um, the thing that most, the, the two things, two are most in my mind, but they're not LGBTQ cases. One is the ACA, and the other is the Electoral College. Uh, and to your earlier point, Rob, I mean, you're right, that most elections are decided at the state level, and there are challenges at the state level, and that's usually where they're resolved. But keep in mind, in Bush v. Gore, 
the folks who wanted to challenge the continuing counting of ballots made a 14th Amendment claim that that ongoing process violated their 14th Amendment right to vote. And the court took that up. The Supreme Court right. agreed to hear it, and we all know what happened in terms of Bush v. Gore. So you're right, that, that, and I think that shouldn't have happened. I think the court shouldn't have weighed in. I think they should have denied review and allowed the, the state court to go forward and allowed that decision to go forward. But um, so we're in, we're, we are in kind of a no man's land where if, if ideology and partisanship is the lodestar by which you make decisions as a justice, rather than constitutional principles, precedent, justice, legitimacy of the court, the reputation of the court, then all bets are off. And the court would be willing to take anything because you would have enough justices to rule to take to review any matter where they want to reach out and come to a different decision or weigh in from their ideological perspective. And that's the thing that, that I feel like sends us very, very close to uh, an ongoing multi-generational uh, constitutional crisis where the courts no longer function uh, based on principles of rule of law and the Constitution becomes essentially an empty vessel with a lot of words, but that doesn't have mm -hmm. any, isn't animated by any meaning in the lives of people. Right. Um, I want to ask you, you had mentioned um, the, uh, the Title IX ruling, and, um, and and you talked about it in terms of the what they did leave in it, which was the religious exemption potential. Um, but one of the things about that ruling was it, from a political watcher standpoint, it was a bit shocking because the thing I know for me that I was most afraid of about Trump's two um, appointees to the court was that the court was packed you know, things were going to be uh, foregone conclusions, et cetera. And Neil Gorsuch came out and surprised um, and went the yep. other direction based on his own viewpoint of strict, strict constructionism. Um, is there potential with um, especially uh, Barrett uh, that there could be surprises like that in the future? Well, this is the thing. We, we just don't know. I mean, by the time Gorsuch was nominated to the court, you know, he'd been a judge for long enough to understand that he was this textualist. He looked at the words and he interpreted rulings based on what he believed was the fair reading of the words. And in the case of Title VII, sex means gender and sexual orientation. He essentially adopted the argument we as advocates have been making for a very long time, that it's not just about biological sex. It's not sex assigned at birth. It's not about genitalia. It is about how you operate in the world as a female, male, gender nonconforming individual, that he, he, had a, he had a more expansive and I would say progressive view of what sex means, but a totally legitimate and completely supported interpretation. And we knew he was a textualist before he was even confirmed to the court because he'd been a judge for a period of time and a protege of, of Justice Kennedy. With Barrett, we have almost zero judicial record 
We have mm. who she, how she has been, how she's operated as a human and a person, knowing that she has very, very strong, very conservative religious beliefs. She's a part, not only is she a devout Catholic and, and in a, with a capital C and in the, with very extreme views um, along the spectrum of Catholic thought and belief, but she also helped found an organization of, around you know, those conservative, charismatic Christianity. So where all your life, everything you do is animated by your religious beliefs. It's not just you're a religious person and you know, you go to church and you have certain beliefs and philosophies. It's that it is meant to be and should be a part of all of how you live. That is extreme. And no one else on the court shares that kind of religious biography. And it, makes, it should make us all very nervous that she will not be ruled by the law or precedent or the legitimacy of the court. Right. She will be ruled by her very extreme and, and somewhat out of step with any mainstream uh, religious belief. Kind of a handmaid's tale from the life, yeah. Kate, um, yeah. a lot of the listeners, we're using some terms here that you and I are, and Rob are very well uh, versed with, but would you take a second so that our listeners can understand what a literalist and what a textualist is when we're referring to the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, these are, this, is nor, this is not a view I ascribe to, but, you know, a literalist, a textualist, um, a strict constructionist of the Constitution is someone who generally looks at the words as they were written, when they were written, and says, I'm only going to make rulings consistent with what those words meant at the time they were written. Now, Gorsuch is a little bit, a few degrees more progressive than that um, by, because, of course, the argument of a true strict constructionist is sex only met men and women and, and biological sex. It had nothing to do with gender. It has nothing to do with sexual orientation. So the te- Gorsuch adds the textualist to the strict constructionist, which is that the, te- the plain reading of the text, the plain reading of the text as, as we read sex now, we understand that it means more than just biological sex. So the te- textualist is slightly more flexible in looking at the language of the Constitution, but a strict constructionist, which Barrett maintains that she is, is that those words are fixed at the time they were written in the 18th century, and it does, none of the changes in the world matter and cannot be brought to bear in interpreting the Constitution. And those results are obviously, as you might imagine, uh, demeaning to women and the changes that women have made, demeaning to people of color and trying to to have some racial reconciliation. Uh, Certainly, they completely ignore the existence of LGBTQ people. And 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 that's the contest. It, it, It used to be the contest between conservative and liberal justices, you were a strict constructionist, or you believed the Constitution was a living, breathing document that, that even the, the founders, even the drafters of the Constitution understood and did, would never have meant those words to only mean what they meant when they were written. It's now, we now have the additional overlay of 
it's not just your, constitu- your approach to constitutional interpretation, but now it's your partisan ideology that is the litmus test for getting to the court. You have to be a bedrock, hardcore, super conservative, extreme Republican in order to be considered for a seat on the court. That additional partisan overlay in considering judges and justices, and Kavanaugh was the first of those, is what threatens to, for a very long time, hence, undermine the legitimacy of the court and make it seem like it's just political hacks making decisions consistent with the GOP playbook. The danger I see with this, and and I, and I see it especially uh, with what McConnell has done by packing the Circuit Court of Appeals uh, and to a lesser degree the district courts, uh, the real damage, of course, being on the appellate court system. But when you're looking at this, I, you know, the United States is not that far removed, at least in terms of temperament, from, you know, Chief Justice Taney and his infamous Dred Scott decision. And it's if we kind of wrap that forward into what a modern society in a modern United States in a global sense is facing, it would take it that it's not that far removed from the potential for, you know, unrest and all sorts of ugliness as we are currently seeing with what's going on in the streets of the United States now, having a court that goes that far to the right and basically undoes the promise of equal justice under the law, that kind of, in my estimation, and this is my opinion, Kate, but that kind of leads us on the road to perdition. Am I not saying that correctly? I mean, people got on me about the Dred Scott thing. I'm like, but if you look in the context of what Justice Tawney wrote in his ruling and then what happened a few years later, and now you look at some of the decisions that have happened in the last 10 or 15 years as this court has moved that direction, you know, am I wrong? No, I no, I don't think you're wrong. I do think the sort of the modern day manifestation of Dred Scott, which ruled that blacks were three fifths a person, they weren't full human beings, mm-hmm. uh, full, full, full citizens uh, in the country. The, the modern take on that is to ignore the endurance of racism and white supremacist structures that are intentionally designed to impede opportunity for uh, particularly black Americans, but I would, I would argue for all people of color. And a perfect example of that willful ignorance of the reality of life for black Americans is the Shelby County decision eviscerating voting rights. And one of my favorite dissents uh, from RBG was in that case where she likened eviscerating voting rights now, particularly in the South, but anywhere in the country, is akin to taking down your umbrella because in the middle of a rainstorm because you weren't getting wet. The Voting Rights Act is a shield to protect and ensure that people of color who have tradition, black Americans specifically, who have purposefully been excluded from being able to vote multiple, multiple times and in many, many ways, that those tactics are not permitted. And so that's, I mean, 
it, it may not be quite as offensive as Dred Scott, where you're not fully human, but mm-hmm. it is the modern-day equivalent, and the opinion was authored by Justice Roberts, to essentially be willfully blind to what we all know is a day-in and day-out reality for black Americans. And that is what I see this court doing even more of. They're not going to be overtly racist. They will just pretend that the racist superstructure that we see so many black people victimized by, and the Breonna Taylor charge is a perfect example of it, endures and will not be challenged. And that is one of the things, one of the consequences of what's happening that I am most concerned about. Me too. Yeah, it seems. Rob. Yeah, it seems like. Um, yeah, to your question though, Brody, um, there's a little bit in this point in history where it's a little bit cart before the horse, or or cart behind the horse, um, because the the difference is is that what we as an American people have seen on TV, in video, and everything else, and this huge miscarriage of justice has been much more dramatic than almost any subtlety that the court could do. I think there will be people who watch that and will point it out, but I don't think it can incite the way what we have in front of us is already doing. It's like, you know, the gasoline fire is roaring and you're throwing more gas on it. Not that, you know, it's like it is now a new bomb in itself. Um, But to that end and and on that subject, um, Kate, what, what do you think is going to happen through the courts on these questions where um, police are just not being brought to justice? I mean, is that, is that a problem in our lawmaking where they somehow are shielded from their behavior or um, is this a justice issue? That's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I mean, we got here because really since Reagan, uh, we've prioritized punishment over real reforms and investing in communities and families and neighborhoods. We thought we could punish our way out of the drug crisis. We thought we could punish our way uh, out of... um, you know, crime that folks resort to because there's no other opportunities. And it's been an abysmal failure. And we now lock up more individuals than any other industrialized country in the world for very little benefit. And the militarization of our policing, uh, part of the war on drugs, which has been an unmitigated disaster and failure, the only thing we can do, I mean, part of it is we do, need, we do need law. We need court rulings. We need challenges to decisions uh, officers make. We need challenges to the existence of police unions and their power. And we need courts that weigh in to try to right the power and, and give it back to people and communities and neighborhoods. But the other thing we need to do is we need to just a massive reinvestment into away from divestment from police into communities and families and schools, early childhood. You know, there's there's no family that wouldn't be incredibly stressed and end up um, in you know very dire circumstances if 
they couldn't find jobs, they couldn't work, uh, their neighborhoods were uh, crime-ridden, and they were constantly hassled and harassed by the police. And uh, individuals were able to make, like district attorneys, able to make charging decisions for certain categories of people, this is mostly black folks, uh, that they didn't make for, for white individuals. We have to just understand that there's a huge disparity in how, quote, justice and criminality is regarded in this country. And that all has to be corrected. But yes, the courts are going to play a role in correcting that unless they refuse to. And where the Supreme Court is headed, I do not see them playing any meaningful role in correcting that. It's going to have to be hyper-local. It's going to have to be county by county, city by city, state by state. All right. Great. Um, uh, Let's say, uh, just for sake of argument, that um, uh, Joe Biden steps aside and Kate Kendall is just put right in that place to run uh, for him and wins. And uh, we win the Senate and we win the House. And I realize this is a little bit of a broad hypothetical, but let's just say that happens. And um, you get to put in two people onto the Supreme Court um, to balance uh, Trump's now uh, five that that he has put in place. Who would you look to um, for those two positions? Well, you know, it's so interesting. I've never really thought that much about the actual individuals. And so I don't mean this as a dodge, Rob. I really don't. Um, <laughs> because, but what I would look to, I would look to, so let me just talk about some qualities that I would look to. I would want individuals, like think about, uh, think about RBG, who have a, a manifest, documented history of really working and and RBG did this across ideologies and identities to try to make the world and life better for individuals previously suffering under a yoke of discrimination or marginalization and she did this for women over and over again women couldn't get credit on their own uh, Women, you know, obviously during her lifetime, but before she became a a lawyer and an advocate, were considered property of their husbands. I would look for someone who had really devoted their legal life to making the Constitution work for the most challenged, the most vulnerable, the most dispossessed. I think that is the purpose of why we have a Constitution why we are a constitutional democracy, why we talk about striving to reach the ideals of fairness and inclusion, even though in many ways it feels like we've lost sight of that and have become so deeply tribalized and partisan. Most people want to live in a country where they feel proud of how the nation operates, how we show up for the most vulnerable. I would look for someone who had built a career demonstrating reverence for the ideals of what the Constitution and law are meant, they're meant to have in the lives of individuals. Like, he wouldn't do it, but I'd put Barack Obama on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Because I do think, I think while he is clearly, you know, he's a Democrat, everybody knows that, he's not riven with partisan ideology. In fact, one of the great faults that I would fault President Obama for is believing too much 
in reaching across the aisle and conciliation Mm -hmm. and consensus. Uh, But that's the kind of person that I think does very well on the court and would be a justice that, that we could be proud of. Excellent. Well, this has been an absolutely brilliant conversation, um, and we are really almost out of time. Um, so, Kate, I want to ask you what, and I'm sure there's plenty, have we not discussed in this um, topic that we should have? Well, no, I, I knew I had to, like, be, be you know, on point and, and bring my energy to this conversation with you guys. So, so I feel, uh, I, I feel for very, very, like, you know, uh, appropriately challenged by the conversation myself. I mean, I guess the final thing that I would say is, is look, I, I do feel a little bit bereft about where we are as a nation, but, but I, I do think we have a history, and particularly as a, as a queer community, we have a history where, We've, we've had very, very dim moments before where we weren't sure what the path out of it was. And I think about during the height of the AIDS crisis, I mean, I came to, to true consciousness as an activist and a, and a lesbian in the 80s and, you know, saw the lives of many of my friends uh, snuffed out due to AIDS and HIV. And, and we, it started as a trickle and then it was a torrent of, of mostly at that point gay men who were, who were dying in big cities. And I remember very vividly Larry Speaks, who was Reagan's press secretary, being asked at a press conference, mm-hmm. what is the administration going to do about all these gay men who are dying? And Speaks' response was to laugh, to mock the idea that we should even care about the fact that gay men were dying. And so out of literally nothing and with no government support, we created an entire movement and infrastructure to save our men and others impacted by AIDS and HIV. So we have this in our muscle memory, how to show up and how to be on the front lines when life or death is on the line. And we just have to recall that and reach into that reservoir and show up in this moment in that same way. Wow. That was so powerful what you just said. And we're at the end of the show and what a way for us to end this conversation. That was absolutely brilliant and right on. Um, thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you for joining us today. Um, uh, you know, the, the, who knows the path ahead, but um, your insight was, was huge, 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 huge. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I also want to thank Brody for pleasure. all of his work. Oh, ours, ours as well. Thank you. Um, Brody, I want to thank you so much for everything you do and being part of this um, and what you do on a day-to-day basis, bringing news and information to our world. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in every week. Please uh, tell your friends, have them subscribe. You can find us on any of the podcast applications. Just do a search for LGBT radio. We will be here. We will be back next week with another uh, fascinating, interesting Um, topic that will hopefully change your world. And with that, goodbye, and we will talk to you again very, very soon. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 